Buju Tansei. Welcome to Mino Gandegan, the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. On this episode, we speak with the Indigenous people who strongly believe in the matriarchy. We pose the question, is reconciliation happening in terms of women's rights and issues? Has it happened within the lives of these fighters for justice? Stick around to find out. Our first guest is Ian Campo, an Anishinaabe musician and activist from Nipissing First Nation, who is a co-founder and ex-member of a tribe called Red. Campo advocates and speaks out for Indigenous communities, addressing colonial violence, oppression, and genocide. Through his work, he has been continually creating a space for Indigenous folk in the music scene. Bonjour, Tanse. Welcome to Mino Gandagan, the Good Voice podcast. I am Alyssa Blackwolf Kixen, and I am here with Ian Campo, um, formerly from A Tribe Called Red and uh, activist. Uh, Ian, welcome to the show. I've seen um, quite a few videos. I mean, we're friends on Facebook, so um, mm-hmm. you're always posting, you know, very... Um, you know, lucrative, thought-provoking posts. Um, you get a lot of flack f- for it, uh, <laughs> which, I mean, you know, as soon as somebody is vocal about anything, uh, you're bound to get, you know, people all riled up. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what I, what I wanted to talk to you about today was just sort of um, uh, your stance on on feminism and traditional masculinity. Um, you were interviewed by, uh, I believe it was McLean's. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And I just, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk more, more about um, you as a male, as an indigenous male, you know, just sort of like what, you know, like your stances on, um, on being a male feminist. I don't identify as a feminist as I feel like you have to be a woman to be able to, like, you know, you have to yeah. be indigenous to like, you don't have to be indigenous to fight for indigenous rights. You have to be indigenous to like, you know, to be a part of that. You yes. know what I mean? Like that's who you're fighting for. Yeah. So I, I, I prefer the term ally. So I try to be, I try to be the ally to the communities that um, I have the privilege in uh, to help end their oppression the same way that I need white people to end the oppression that I experienced. Yeah, it was it was a very long process of deprogramming and de-lear- and unlearning and, uh, you know, questioning most of the what you've been taught in your life, not just at school, but also socially. Come to a lot of realizations how, you know, gender roles in general are just ridiculous concepts in order to, to control people and control specific people within the... Uh, Within society, same with same with you know racial stereotypes and those sort mm-hmm. of things. So um, you know, little little thoughts like 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 why why is why was uh, baking seen as like a, a a woman activity, like a feminine activity? Yeah. Right. But a baker in society is seen as a man. Yeah. Right. And it was just like these arbitrary gender roles that didn't really make any sense. And. Um, yeah, eventually you start learning like traditional ways and how that starts making way more sense. Like mm-hmm. there was there was uh, uh, so much reverence for for indigenous women, for for our women um, in, in understanding the connection of Mother Earth and women was like a, an unbreakable understanding. Like they were 
and they were both revered as being the gods that they were. Yes. I mean, they were, they were revered as, as Gichi Manitou was. And understanding that in tradition, um, the, the, the privileges were reversed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, traditionally, like all the ceremonies, uh, at least in, in, in Anishinaabek uh, uh, traditions, from what I'm learning right now, mm-hmm. um, is that men had to do ceremony. There was like very rigorous, tough ceremony that we had to do uh, monthly four-day fast. Uh, lifelong vision quests and vision quests fulfillment. Like we had to do these things. If we didn't, if we didn't receive our vision quests, we weren't considered a man. We didn't, we didn't transition to adulthood because right. women were ceremony, and right. they they are ceremony. And every month they do, they have their own ceremony that's naturally connected to all the cycles around us. Right? It was just like, oh, they're it's it's all the same. It's all connected. Have you always had like? Have you always felt this way have you always believed this or is this something that you've you know that that has been sort of you know like a newer journey for you oh brand new brand new all of it's brand new yeah oh yeah um i'll say within like the last seven years <laughs> okay had big big culture shift, big shift in my brain nice big uh, uh shift in understanding on how things work again like it was uh in, uh, I forget the year it was, but uh, uh, I had a campaign. I think it was uh, 2010 or 11. Uh, I had a campaign against a youth football team in Ottawa called uh, the Redskins. Right. And uh, it got, like, national attention, and I got, you know, <laughs> panned and, and <laughs> name-called and ridiculed nationally um, on every comment section that touched on it. And it was, it was a big story for a while. And that's kind of where I got my chops. But do you think, um, as you know, as an ally, do you think that um, reconciliation uh, is possible in terms of indigenous feminism? To be perfectly honest, like indigeneity, culture, and identity is based on feminism. It's based on on right. on, on uh, uh, women's superiority. You know what right. I mean? Like they ran things. Mm-hmm. They they had they were revered as gods because they gave life just like the earth and just like the the Gichi Manitou. Yeah, like they were the only beings that gave life. So we revered them. So being indigenous and, and instilling like true indigenous values is revering women as as the gods that they are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So to be inherently indigenous is to carry those those values to begin with. Yeah. Right. So, so decolonizing, I think, is, is the most important thing. And, and decolonizing, I think that like uh, uh, reclaiming those those values is going to, you know, it's not even it's not even feminism. It's just indigeneity. It's just the way yeah. things work in my culture. You know, yes. I, I can't speak for all indigenous cultures, but from what I'm understanding and learning, this is how things work. So um, so what you're saying is that, you know, all these things like being indigenous, uh, being feminist, uh, all these things are sort of intertwined and interconnected, and um, for for reconciliation to happen, people need to to recognize. Well, okay. See, maybe reconciliation. See, I don't like indigenous people didn't do anything that we need to reconcile for. Yeah, here's what I understand. Right? Yeah. Like, what did, what did we do that we need to reconcile for? We didn't do anything. So reconciliation is for settlers. Mm-hmm. Right, it's for it's for non-indigenous people who are who are who are Canadian, the separate from our nationhood. Yeah, right. So they need to figure out reconciliation, and I feel that reconciliation, at the very minimum, 
is to reclaim what we lost, what, re- what, what the colonization, what residential schools, what all these things took from us as culture. I think that's the first step in reconciliation. And in doing that and in re- reinvigorating our, our, our cultures, that's when, you know, the feminism will just come through because that's just part of how we live. Right? I, a, mm-hmm. a teaching that I got was that men's role in the community, if the community was a body, men were the bones. Men were the skeleton. We were there to support the community, and we were there to protect our hearts, which is our children, and our women, who are our brains. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like, our bones aren't supposed to bash in our brains. Right. It doesn't work. It kills the community. We're not supposed to beat up our hearts. You know what I mean? Like, that mm-hmm. was our role as Indigenous people, as, as Indigenous men. And that was, that's, that's what I'm understanding my role is now. And i got to do what the mind's telling me to do. I'm just here to support I appreciate the fact that you brought up that reconciliation is something that needs to be done on settler terms um, or be done by settlers on indigenous terms. Right, exactly. Uh, It's for them to come up with stuff and us to be like, yeah, that's cool or no, not yet. Learning and unlearning is, you know, such a confusing process. But I feel like if we as, you know, adults do it so that we can teach our children so that they don't, you know, have to you know, climb those same grueling hills that we do because they're going to have to climb other hills mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that we can't even comprehend. Up next, our second panel guest is Eden Robinson, a Heisla Heitluck writer and author from Kitimat, British Columbia. Her books emphasize Indigenous experiences, challenges problematic stigmas, and focuses on building Indigenous culture, identity, and spirituality. She is the winner of the Writers' Trust Engel Finley Award, and is known for such works as Monkey Beach and Son of a Trickster. Bonjour, Tanse. Welcome to Mino Gandagan, the Good Voice Podcast. I am Alyssa Blackwolf Kixen, and I am here with Eden Robinson. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> you, I've been reading interviews, mm. and um, a lot of the interviews really go in-depth about your your trickster series mm. um but what i want to go in depth is with you okay actually um so how about you tell us a little bit about yourself where are your people from where are you from <laughs> who's your mother who's your mom <laughs> do i know her <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh my dad is heisla my mom is Haltzik. uh they're both small communities on the west coast of british columbia uh, uh, Kitimat is 500 miles north of Vancouver. Uh, it's Heisla territory. And uh, when my dad was 33, his mom decided that he was an embarrassing bachelor. She started arranging a marriage for him, so he promptly went fishing. Uh, <laughs> uh, he Fishing took him down to Bella Bella, where my mom is. Mom lived. Uh, she lived in a boathouse down by the docks and um, I have two different stories Uh, according to Gran, mom saw dad and she said that's the man I'm going to marry Mm -hmm. according to mom she just asked who he was (laughs) (laughs) can I help you are you lost (laughs) Uh, they met up later that night at an illegal jukebox joint Uh, And um, all the girls wanted to dance with dad because he was hot and fresh meat. And uh, he only wanted to dance with mom. 
So uh, back then, uh, Bella Bella used to be a naval base. Uh, so there was an old war siren that would go off just before they shut off the generators. And um, so the, the siren went off. She was too far from her house uh, because it was all dark. So he walked her home. So they had a traditional shack up and then got married six months later. So <laughs> to recap, Gran was going to arrange his marriage. Mm. He went fishing and then arranged his own marriage, then essentially. Then he brought her home. And then he brought her home. Yeah. Mm. So she's 12 years younger than dad. And the aunties were very upset that he'd married a baby. Uh, and when she heard about this, she went and told them what she thought of them for thinking that she was a baby. Uh, and to go to our potlatches, you have to have a feast name, and they gifted her with the name uh, Sea Monster Rising from the Depths. Uh. <laughs> that is some serious shade. <laughs> That you might as well just called her wench. Like, <laughs> wow. We, we feud quite seriously. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no. When I uh, when I was ten, I got a feast name. Uh, and I was adopted into the Beaver Clan, which I didn't understand the full politics of when I was ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're both matrilineal cultures, so Mom's Eagle Clan from from Bella Bella so I didn't understand what it meant that she let us be adopted into the beaver clan uh, and I remember it was at someone's settlement feast and me and my sister were brought up and given the names at the same time and uh, they said if we wanted to know what our names meant to go talk to Mama O so the next day we did and my sister's name was Sigidamanach return chief lady uh, it's a, a name from up the line. It was uh, given to our uh, our clan through marriage. Um, so it's one of the names that goes back into our treasure box. Uh, okay. There's names that are inherited. Yeah, Those are the noble names. Um, the names that go back into the treasure box are still noble, but you know, not as noble. Think Fergie rather than Diana. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, so, so the story behind the name was that uh, there was an arranged marriage for trade purposes. Uh, the Heisler chief fell madly in love with this woman, uh, and his other five wives were so jealous they kept trying to poison her. So, <laughs> so he had to send her back home to save her life. But to divorce her would cause deep shame and rupture a lot of trade alliances. So he made her a chief and then sent her home. Uh, so there's songs and, you know, sad women beside rivers combing their long, dark hair. Mm-hmm. I went, wow, what does my name mean? And then Mama I went, big lady. your name uh, 10 you were 10 yes. and they were just already like 
big lady. Big lady. Okay. Uh, well, big lady is actually you know more referring to rank than size. Yeah. 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 So it's it's you know it's a really good name. It's just not as romantic as my sister's. Well, you know, I mean, I feel like in in the different cultures. Um, it would mean something different than yes. it does in, you know, the Western culture where yes. they're like, oh, big lady. And it's like, <laughs> you have no idea how much of an honor that is. High ranking at five. <laughs> <laughs> Quite accurate. I'm the boss, so move over. Um, which kind of brings me to um, the episode that, that we are doing today mm-hmm. is about um, indigenous feminism, indigenous mm-hmm. matriarchy. Mm-hmm. And um, when we were in the office earlier and you were talking about like, yes, I'm an auntie to a million <laughs> kids, <laughs> you know, whether that's biological or, you know, just through, you know, children that you inherit yes. in the community. Um, I think that's something that was so important um, all across the nations was our aunties, you know, when there's something that, you know, that our mothers, our fathers, our, you know, cookums, mushums can't do. The aunties were the ones who were vital to, to that child rearing. So, Uh, well, we had, we had different, uh, we had a different way of naming family, like aunties were more sisters and mm-hmm. uh cousins were more siblings and yes uh, so the so the older generations had trouble with the with the new anglicized way of yes. naming the nuclear family and then the extended family the extended family was was your family it wasn't uh it wasn't extended the way that we think of extended family mm-hmm. so you know so i have like a younger sister and an older brother uh, uh, both my parents was a very small nuclear family, but in Highland Celtic traditions, um, you know, I have like thirty-two sisters, <laughs> 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 and you know, uh, about the same amount of brothers, and you know, the aunties and uncles are are different. Yeah, um, and you know, some of the older cousins we would just call uncle or auntie. Um, so my relationships in the village are sort of a mix of the two different ways of thinking about things and um, uh, you know some relations are close some relations are not so close some are you know frenemy uh, uh, and I'm used to thinking of family as this giant umbrella rather than a tiny little nucleus so in my fiction I usually have to pare down characters to how that makes sense to people. And uh, the Trickster series is being optioned for television, and they had to condense some of the characters, like three characters into one, to make it fit for television. Yeah. Um, so as, as, as an author and, um, you know, as an auntie and as a, as a woman in, you know, just sort of, um, you're always having that balancing act of of you know trying to stay true to your traditions, but also trying to survive in this very yes. colonized world. Um, since the TRC released the ninety four mm-hmm. calls to action, <laughs> we all have a good laugh about it. We all. 
every single person we've interviewed, we've all had a good laugh about it. Have you seen, like, have you seen any sort of changes in terms of, you know, being an Indigenous woman? Not really. Like, you know, uh, just, just a few weeks ago, another woman went missing on the Highway of Tears. And the, you know, the media response to it was so quiet. It's like she's, you know, the 20th official, you know, woman to go missing on the Highway of Tears. This has been going on since, you know, um, God, 1979. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was no call to arms. You know, it was it was a community effort. There was some coverage, but it wasn't, you know, it. you know, if she was if she was white, it would be a very different response. Uh, so it, it's still an incredibly frustrating uh, world to live in. Oh, <laughs> as we just. It, it, it's not it's not a sigh of of, um, you know, like giving up, but no. it's just that sigh of. Still yeah, yeah, we still have I'm so much fight. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of um, everybody's favorite buzzword, mm. reconciliation. Not happening until you deal with the missing and murdered women. Uh, we need some truth in the truth and reconciliation. Reconciliation alone is, it, you can't forgive someone um, until you, you know, you admit that, you need to do something it's the truth comes first Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't think we're as a country we're not committed to seeing the truth and until we can actually see what's happening I think we're making moves towards it but at this point with you know things like Trans Mountain uh, with things like um, you know the Sight Sea Dam with things like uh, the fish farms, like all the basic resources for for living, for life, are still being threatened by large resource projects. And um, people don't seem to see the connection between reconciliation and, you know, not messing up land for generations. Um, you know, it's not to say we're anti-resource, we just don't want stupid resource we've had a lot of (laughs) we've had a lot of like harebrained resource like trans mountain is harebrained yeah it's you know the science behind it is icky uh it's you know it's it's just if i was a part of like enbridge the enbridge pipeline was uh a was going to terminate on one of our reserves. So we were a part of the NAB environmental panels. Um, and, you know, I think it was Omnibus Budget Bill 45, where they sort of rammed, you know, uh, consulting in, in with the NAB. And they are not qualified in any way, shape, or form to consult with the indigenous peoples of British Columbia. They don't have the background. They don't have the, you know, that they don't have the time. Uh, when they consulted with the Heisley, it was, you know, uh, four days of testimony. Two of those were Heisley. One of those was, you know, the environmental groups. And the other was the municipality of Kitimat. 
and that's not consultation. And um, the NEB was set up to regulate oil and gas. It's not designed to consult with Indigenous people. And I feel like until we can actually sort some of these matters out, like they're still trying to ram through Trans Mountain in in you know the pipeline that's going to Vancouver, and again it's you know it's a harebrained project. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to. It's it's just it's it's like okay, you know um, even even with the judgment that came down saying no, you have to rethink some things. What they're doing is like the bare basics. They're doing even less than they did in the last consultation. So, um, so they should be interesting. (laughs) 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 It's like you can't say that you want to reconcile if you're repeating the same shit that you did before. Well, but you know, Trudeau does give a shit. (laughs) He does give a fuck. About indigenous people. He rode horses and he know. cries. <laughs> Those tears Sorry. mean something. Those I did not mean, mean to have my cynical laughter that loud. <laughs> it's a beautiful cynical laughter. Um, uh, it's that shitty boyfriend that keeps bringing you flowers. I cheated on you. Yeah. I'll never do it again. Look how sorry I am. Here's some pretty roses. Here's some here's some pretty roses and tears. <laughs> please, please believe me. Look at this. <laughs> um, so as 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 an auntie and as as a woman living on this land who very apparently sees this truth that needs to happen. What do we need to move forward with reconciliation? We have respect. Respect. Period. Period. Um, unless we're going to move over in a respectful, uh, we we can't move forward until, um, you know, we're not tokenized. You know, our opinions have to actually mean something. Um, you know, if you're not willing to speak with us as equals, if you're if you still think of us as obstacles, then this relationship is going to continue to be, you know, one of conflict. Um, Because I don't see, uh, in BC, I don't know about anywhere else, um, how, you know, being so condescending and um, dismissive of valid environmental concerns is going to, you know, reconcile any of the communities with each other. Um, you know, the if if you can't listen to someone, um, I don't think the relationship can change. I think that is so valid and so true. <laughs> so Trudeau, <laughs> if you're listening. She knows her shit. <laughs> um, it's true, though. It's true, though. Um, so, no, if you say his name too much, he will appear. That is true. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Do you knock on wood? <laughs> Salt somebody quick. Um, so we're down to our last question, and um, I've asked the same question to every person who I've had on the podcast. Mm-hmm. 
Um, for you, um, just being so such an important person in in terms of the books that you write, just the presence that you have, your role in the community. Um, within you know your specific community but then within the indigenous world um, I feel like our our kinships are so so important so just you having that that space and that that podium to to say all these truths and um, to do what you do what advice would you give to young people who see what you're doing and they're like I want to do that um well the the first thing is you know um yeah there's there's a difference between your passion and passion that's imposed on you uh when i was younger i couldn't really differentiate between the two and i was following a lot of paths that that weren't mine um and now that i'm older i recognize that those paths are important but they're not my paths so um, so that's focused my attention to where it needs to be rather than where other people see my paths. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, uh, the place where I am is, you know, uh, is more of a door holder. Uh, I see some of the emerging Indigenous writers coming up and they're so exciting. Uh, like Billy Ray Belcourt, Joshua Whitehead, oh, my Alicia heart. Elliott. Yes. Um, you know, these, I, I love them. They're, they have such power and such passion. Um, you know, even the older image, uh, older, I, I don't know if emerging is the right word, but, you know, they're, they're just starting out on their, their careers and they've, uh, they're social media savvy. They're you know they're not afraid of saying truth to power. Um, you know they're tackling a lot of misconceptions in a very articulate and passionate way. Uh, but I also feel like it's very respectful. And you know now they're getting some pushback. And I think my role is to be the auntie that backs them up. And that is where I see me. Um, I grew up in a very different. Re- generation and I have a lot of trouble articulating the same things that they do um, but you know I can be the auntie with the baseball bat huh? <laughs> <laughs> I can be the auntie with the bail <laughs> that's how we roll on the yeah. coast <laughs> That's how we roll here too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So basically what we're saying is for the younger folks out there who, you know, are aspiring to do this, we got baseball bats and bail money. So. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> you do you, boo. You do you. <laughs> goodness um Eden Meekwich uh, just not only for doing the podcast but for just sharing your gift so so honestly and um 
I I cannot thank you enough. So on behalf of behalf of UMFM, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to Mino Gandegan, the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Eden Robinson. Check out her work at penguinrandomhost.ca slash Eden Robinson. Our third and final guest is Nahani Fontaine, a Manitoba politician and the current elected member of the Legislative Assembly for the St. John's Riding Area. Fontaine is an advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and a voice for Drag the Red. Hello, my name is Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon and you are listening to Mino Gandagan, the Good Voice Podcast. I'm sitting here with Nahani Fontaine. Hi, Anine. Thank you much for having me. So I am from the Saigon Anishinaabe First Nation, mm-hmm. which is about an hour and a half north of Winnipeg. And currently I am the NDP MLA for St. John's. Uh, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's, it's a blessing. It's, um, it's certainly not a place that I ever thought I would be. Uh, when you look back on your childhood or you look back on your family's history, it's certainly nothing that I would have ever thought for myself or for anyone in my family, my immediate family, uh, that we'd be sitting in the, the ledge as a, an elected official. Uh, all through the process, I was always kind of in this state of shock. And then the election night, I was in the state of shock. And then the first day of the House sitting, which was in May of 2016, it happened to be a throne speech day. And I remember sitting in the ledge. And only if you're an elected official or you're a clerk, or you're a page, are you allowed in that space, right? It's a very privileged space. And I remember just sitting there and watching all of this history in, in you know, protocol and unfold before me. And I was just sitting there and I was thinking, I was looking around, and I was thinking, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> right? Like, you know, blocks down from that, that building, my mom and my grandmother were sexually exploited. Mm-hmm. Blocks from that building, our women and our girls are still sexually exploited. Blocks from that building, our people are dying. And yeah. not in, you know, in some, you know, pretend way, like yeah. literally are dying. Yeah. And so I couldn't understand how I was there. Mm-hmm. I literally was in shock all day. The juxtaposition yeah. of... You know, not only our people, but your literal people, your roots, your matriarchs. And here you are in this place where you never thought you would be. Well, and here's the other piece that I think is so important. And I always kind of share this piece. But that building was not made for our people, but it certainly wasn't made for women as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So as a woman and of course, as an indigenous person, I felt it very acutely that that was a space I was not supposed to be in. I was not meant to be in. In fact, if you look at the history of the Manitoba legislature in the you know the last 124 years, there's been about 837 men who have been elected. And Bernadette Smith, who is the NDP MLA for Point Douglas, mm-hmm. became the 60th woman so 837 to 60 women. That is an interesting piece as well, sitting in a space that has been the domain of primarily white men. So of the 60 women, how many of the 60 women are Indigenous? 
So right now, which is, again, pretty phenomenal when we when we think about it in the context of reconciliation, the first Indigenous woman ever elected to the Manitoba legislature was Amanda Lathlin. And she was elected in April of 2015 during a by-election. So she became the first First Nation woman. In 2016, I was elected. I became the first urban Indigenous woman. Sister colleague Judy Clausen, who is a Liberal member, was elected in Kiwetinak. And then Bernadette was elected in June of 2017. So there are four Indigenous women, First Nation women. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, a PC member. Her name is Colleen Mayer. Um, she indicates that she is Métis. So okay. we would say that there's five Indigenous women. Right. And there is um, Flor Marcelino, who is uh, Filipino. She became one of the first uh, women of color or Filipino women elected. So really, out of the 60, there's maybe six that are non-white. There's four Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. That's how powerful Indigenous women are. Yes. <laughs> that, that's how powerful that out, out of in the last couple of years, in two years, we have four Indigenous women elected. It is it is pretty incredible and just sort of um this the resurgence that's happening yeah. and the the power that that women not i don't like using the term taking back because it's something that is inherently ours but that other people outside of uh, outside of our moon groups are starting to recognize and I think now is the time, mm-hmm. you know, that people don't have a choice whether to hear our voices or Absolutely. not. Yeah. Um, and so just I, and I just I want to yeah. I, I, I really want to kind of um, talk about that last point that you said, because I really do loathe as well the language of you know, taking back and, and, mm-hmm. and all of that, because our women have always been like that. Yeah. If you if you go through history, and I've done, you know, my master's degree was on Indigenous women's historic uh, historical context. If it was not for our women, a lot of our cultures and ceremonies and language and traditions wouldn't have survived. Yeah. In fact, if you go through history and you look at the history of colonization and assimilation, but also Christianization, it was actually indigenous women that rejected it and actually fought against it. So, you know, I've, I've had a couple people say to me, oh, well, you know, indigenous women's feminism, and we'll, we'll just use that <laughs> as a general word, right, yeah. comes from white women's or Western women's feminism. And I always kind of lose my mind. Because, in fact, we were equal pre-contact. There was no such concept of, you know, that men were superior to us and then we were inferior and we had to listen to her. Like, what are you talking about? Like, our women, if you, had got, if you went back pre-contact, they wouldn't even understand what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, like, our feminism, our empowerment, our agency, our engagement does not come from anybody except ourselves. Yeah. And I think that that's really important, especially this generation, to yeah. understand that all of it, like you said, it mm-hmm. comes from somewhere deep within us. Yeah. It comes from our ancestries. How would you say that what you're doing right now responds to the 
94 calls to action. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's this dichotomy in respect of thought in the community that, you know, whether Mm -hmm. or not to engage in colonial Western uh, processes, I get that. But for me, and not everybody's going to take that path, and that's fine, right? I think that as Indigenous people, it is okay to come at empowerment, reconciliation, self-determination, all of those pe- reclamation, all of those revolution, all of those different yes. things. It is okay for us to come at different angles. You know, being elected to me, and this is just my perspective, is part of my sacred responsibility to bring my people into that building. Yeah, I have spoken in that building about sexual abuse. I've talked about sexual exploitation. I've talked about the theft of land. I've talked about our children in CFS, my own, you know, um, being in CFS as well. Mm -hmm. Like I've brought up all of these issues in the house and I've brought us in the house and I've brought our ancestors in the house. And so to me, that is my piece of reconciliation or not my piece of reconciliation, but a part of reconciliation. Everybody has a role. You have a role, mm. right? Bringing people's voices to radio and, and to wherever you go, right? Wherever mm. this podcast goes, that's your responsibility. Mm-hmm. Bringing laughter, yep. bringing our realities in laughter. And I've seen you now twice, right? <laughs> bringing our story in yeah. laughter, that's your sacred responsibility. Mm-hmm. Fighting on the front lines. You know, going to you, wherever it may be, everybody has a role. Yeah. And no, to me, no role is better. No yeah. role is more superior. We are all the same and we are all invested in this concept of reconciliation. I think that, you know, certainly reconciliation demands action. What, what sort of advice would you give to young people who are, you know, looking towards or who don't even know about reconciliation like what what type of advice would you give to them we get no do-overs like this is this is it and as you get older and this part shrinks and you know you're moving towards god knows what as an indigenous woman i refuse to be negatively socially constructed anymore i refuse to be silenced I refuse to shrink myself mm-hmm. as women, and in particular as Indigenous women, as Black women. Mm-hmm. We're always made to shrink ourselves. Yes. Oh, no, no, don't say that. You're going to offend them. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, 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 don't. You know, you, you can't do this. You can't say that. You can't be in this space. You, you have to wear a skirt to ceremony. Like, no. Like, I refuse. This is it. This Mm -hmm. is the one life that I get. You know, our ancestors survived and they struggled so that we can have life, so that we can live our life fully and authentically. And so for me, the the advice that I find I'm giving more often than not the last many years is to just do you. Like... (laughs) literally reject all of that uh, that stuff that we are made, in my mind, fundamentally by patriarchy, mm-hmm. right, With within racism and sexism and all of those things that really attempt to shrink women. Yeah. And I just refuse to do it anymore. Like I'm, you know, some people will say, 
what would you say what you are most proud of in in the position that you're in right now? In the current position? Yeah is um, the monument dedication to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls at the Forks, which if people have not seen it, I would encourage people, it is by the, she is by the Odena. And that was a project that I worked on for about two years when I was a special advisor on Indigenous women's issues for Manitoba. And uh, she is my greatest, uh, like, professional accomplishment. And I worked with families, MMIWG families, that together we ultimately, um, she was what was created to represent our missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Like for the next 30, 40, 50 years, she will be standing there. That is what I'm most proud of. It is, uh, if you haven't seen it, it is probably one of the most beautiful tributes that you could see in North America, I would say, on Turtle Island. Um, if, and if you happen to go there at nighttime, um, she glows. Yeah, she glows, and it's it is just one of the most powerful yeah. monuments I've ever seen. Yeah, Nani, you um, you just have so much wisdom, and you have just the most amazing things to say. And I'm so glad you are where you are because you. we we needed we needed your voice, and you're where you belong. Thank you, Miigwech. So uh, I just wanted to say miigwech nahani for doing this. Thank you. And you are listening to Nina Gundaigan, The Good Voice, and that was Nahani Fontaine, and I'm Melissa Blackwolf-Kixon. Thank you. Welcome back to Mino Gundagan, the Good Voice podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Nahani Fontaine. Be sure to check out her profile on todaysndp.ca slash MLA slash Nahani Fontaine. Miigwech to all our guests on this final episode in our 13-part series. Thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts on a subject that should be on every Canadian voice, reconciliation. We'll close off our episode with a track from Tara Williamson. This is The Prairies. Check out more of her music at tarawilliamson.net slash music.
Dagan was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabek, Nahewak, Ojikri, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Our executive producer is Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon, our associate producer is Sasha Mark, and I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of Boogie the Beat. Check out more of his brilliant work at soundcloud.com slash boogie the beat. The interstitial music is courtesy of Bloom. You can hear more of their songs at bloom14.bandcamp.com. We would like to thank the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the University of Manitoba's Office of Indigenous Achievement, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, the University of Manitoba Students' Union, and UMFM 101.5 for their support in the production of this podcast.